Am I on? You guys can hear me? I want to introduce the love of my life. You guys turn around. That's my wife, Christina. Now, give her a hand clap. She's going to be doing this all through the entire session because I've been too busy to get a haircut. And so she, I'm like going, okay, I can't. I'm just going to do a ponytail or something here. But anyway, hey, thanks for coming. Uh, you know, this is, uh, I've been to every single ARC conference. Uh, this is the first time that Christina has ever been able to come with me. And so this has been a really moving, emotional time for me. Uh, it was particularly emotional because I got to hang out who was someone that had a, a tremendous impact on my life spiritually, and that's Pastor Tommy Barnett. Okay, and uh, I, we were joking yesterday. I said, I, I don't even, I, this year I'll be 30 years in the practicing law. Uh, only working with churches and ministries, religious nonprofit organizations, okay? Would have been a sixth-generation preacher, seed on the back of a church pew. Everybody expected me to go become a pastor. And I told my dad I wanted to go to law school. And he's kind of like, let him go do that. And he'll get back to, you know, doing what we do. And, uh, and, and, and then all of a sudden, I found myself working with churches and ministries and it never looked back. So uh, that's one of the things that, you know, I, 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 I love working with church planters, uh, church planting organizations, ARC in particular, um, I remember sitting around, um, you know, I want you to turn around and look at my wife again. Imagine her in a deer camp. Can you see her in a deer camp with camo on and a gun? So, okay. Can you, can you, okay. We were sitting around the campfire in a deer camp with Billy Hornsby and Pastor Tom Mullins. And he was speaking into my life. And when I think of, when I think of Peter in the, you know, in the Bible, St. Peter, I think of Billy Hornsby. And he just had an amazing gifting. Uh, and he would look at you. And when he told you, you didn't, you didn't question it, right? And he said, listen, you're, you're going to work with the biggest organizations, but don't forget the church planter. Don't forget the young guys. Don't forget the people that are just starting. Don't forget the people that have 150 or whatever the number is. Don't forget anybody. Just love God's church. And so that's kind of how we roll, all right? And so uh, what we're going to talk about today is something that uh, it's not going to be a surprise to anything. Any, anything we say here is not going to be surprising to you. And Dustin's going to, he's a pastor as well as being a lawyer. Uh, so he's got special expertise. I've never been a pastor, always been a lawyer. So he's going to chime in if I miss some stuff or he wants to emphasize something. Cool. Then we're going to try to leave 15 minutes for Q&A. Uh, such that you guys can ask questions of us. There's a lot more content in this than we're going to cover. And so how do you want to handle that? Yeah, so right after we're done, I have uh, some business cards. If you want the slide deck, just take a card, and then we'll email that out to you. So you can have the whole slide deck, and you can look at it that way. So. Okay, so first of all, wh why are we talking about crisis? Uh, who, who wants to be successful in ministry here? Raise your hand. Let me, let me give you some some news that will not surprise you, but the relationship to success in ministry, there's a corresponding, a correlation to how many crises you're going to have to deal with. Every single person that's spoken here today, and 90% of them are clients of mine, uh, go through crisis. Now, you may be thinking, well, I don't hear about it, or I don't know, what, what, does, he, what does he mean when he says a crisis? Okay, so we're going to talk about that. But crisis is something that you're, it's unexpected, okay? Uh, it's, it's the element of surprise. It's the, um, the thing that comes at you and you didn't see it coming. 
Okay, and so we're going to talk about what a crisis is. We're going to talk about how to respond to a crisis. Now, I'll tell you, when I think about crisis, I think about, um, most of you flew here probably to the conference. Remember the flight attendants always pull out the mask and they, they tell you to belt your seatbelt and put on the thing and all that. The reason they do that is they're reminding us that if you lose pressurization in your plane, the little mask is going to drop and you're supposed to put it on so you can breathe. Why? Because there is no oxygen in the cabin, and you'll suffer from something called hypoxia. Hypoxia is simply the lack of oxygen to allow your mind and your organs to function. Now, having been, and I'll be honest with you, and this kind of sounds weird, what I'm about to say, I'm at my very best in a crisis. my, My wife will attest to this. I, I, I don't love crisis. I'm for anybody. But if, if I get called into a crisis, I'm at my very best. That's where God has used me in ways that, that I, I wished I could tell you. And, and, and most of the things I would tell you you've never heard of because you know what? We were successful. <laughs> you know, you didn't read about it in the newspaper or whatever. But here's what, back to hypoxia. When a crisis occurs, if it's seriously a crisis, it sucks all the air out of the room. And if you're not prepared, you'll suffer the symptoms of hypoxia. Confusion, generally a flushing of your face turning red, racing of your heart, a shortness of breath. Sometimes you pass out. And sometimes you die. Payne Stewart, y'all remember Payne Stewart? He died. That's what happened in that plane. Lost pressure, they all died. Again, they, they, they took off, they were going somewhere, they didn't end up there, they crashed. That's the biggest thing that we hate as lawyers, as church lawyers, is to see an organization or a ministry or a calling or an individual's life crash because of crisis. And that's why this is really important. All right, that's a big enough of a wind-up, except I want to just say this to you. My, one of my favorite scriptures is Psalm 40. He waited patiently upon the Lord. He cli- I, I cried out to him. He lifted me up out of the pit and the muck and the miry clay, and he set my feet upon a rock. Now, that's crisis management, okay? Because when you're in a crisis, you feel like you're in a pit. And let me tell you something. You'll be surprised when you're in that pit because the pit is full. It's pitiful, (laughs) okay? I mean, the pit is full. You're looking around going, wow, I I had no idea. So many people were having crisis. It's because you're in ministry, there's, one, there's only one solution to, if you don't want to have crisis, there's only one solution. You need to get up and go home. Don't do it. Don't be in ministry. Uh, because there's no way to avoid it. Why? I'm not going to preach to you guys, but there is, a, there is spiritual warfare at work, and the enemy does not want you to be successful. And you just got to remember that. So keep those things in mind as we talk about some of the practical things you can do in terms of how to deal with and manage crisis. Now, one of the things I'll tell you also from my experience is that crises generally do not occur during the normal business hours, Monday through Friday. Uh, again, my wife's here. She can attest to the fact that I give, if you're a client of mine, you get my cell phone number. Why is that? Because I know if you really need me, you're going to end up calling me. Oftentimes, it's at that board meeting on a Friday night or Saturday night, or it's something that happened on Sunday or whatever, okay? I was asked, as we were talking about this, to give an example of a crisis that would kind of, you know, draw you in, you know, and you can understand how the severity of it is, and it would be applicable to everybody. 
Well, that's a hard one for us because we deal with a lot of crisis. One that came to mind, however, was a call that I got from a pastor in the state. I didn't know his name, didn't know the church, wasn't in my state, had never heard of him. He had been given my name by somebody else and he calls me up and he tells me this. Hey, listen, I need your help. Well, what's going on? Well, we have a church school and we really look at it as a ministry of our church. And um, it's, it's been very successful, but most of the attendees in the church are not church members. They're not kids of people that attend our church. There was a, a couple, a, a couple in the high school, you know, dating couple, and apparently the relationship went bad. And so he lured his girlfriend down into a creek, shot her in the head and killed her. Okay? Now, that is a crisis. Everybody agree? Anybody think that's not a crisis? Okay. And I said, okay, then what? And he said, well, the police are coming. Fox 4 is called. And I need to know what to do. Now, that's not the time to engage in crisis planning. Right? That's not the time. Uh, hypoxia sets in. You're not going to make good decisions. You're going to make mistakes. And, uh, and so... I use that as an example because it didn't have to be that extreme, uh, but, but there's various kinds of crisis which we'll talk about, but you got to be prepared for them. Understand that they're going to come out of nowhere and also understand that you have to make decisions based upon insufficient information and oftentimes misinformation. There's not a, the perfect setting. You're going to hear something and you're going to think, okay, if, if true then we got a crisis and you're not going to have the opportunity to flesh it out immediately. In, in our world, we talk about it. We call it the 24 hours. There's a golden 24 hours. If you have a real crisis at your church, your ministry, uh, you literally have about 24 hours in the world in which we live. And I could probably argue it's less now with social media and everything else, but, but about 24 hours to figure out what your story is and get it communicated out and feel it, figure out how you're going to respond. And the decisions you make within that 24 hours will determine the outcome of your crisis. Whether or not you're able to put the mask on, land the plane, or crash. Okay? Is it worth time talking about? All right, let's do it. Um, one of the things that you're going to encounter in a crisis is this escalating flow of events. Um, it's, it's, it's thing, things are going to be coming at you like a fire hydrant, okay? And you're going to be asking a lot of questions, what I call the five W's. Who, what, when, where, why? What, what happened? Where, who was who involved? Who, who knows this? What, what do we have to do? Who do we have to call? And it's Ghostbusters. Who are we going to call? Uh, so you've got, you're going to go through all these, these issues, and you're going to be thinking about this and you're going to be doing it under intense scrutiny, all right? And several of the pastors that have spoken this, this session or these last couple days, they all talk about how, uh, or many of them talked about how there's, you, you can't avoid certain things because God is fashioning you. He's strengthening you. He's getting you prepared, right? And so crisis, if you look at it correctly, is an opportunity to get stronger so that you can go to the next level. And I always encourage people when I'm talking to them that, okay, this is not, this, this is not going to be the end, okay? We're going we're to get through this, generally. Um, um, not always, but generally. 
and you're going to be stronger. So if you, if you keep that mindset, really important. And, and avoid something that I call um, a siege mentality. Okay, I, this is the, I'm from Texas, all right? We call this the Alamo. I mean, I don't know if you all know the story of the Alamo. Uh, it's a great story, but it's also kind of a tragic story because they didn't have a chance. Okay, they're just going to hold up at 157 versus 5,000. You lose, right? <laughs> so it's, it's, it's really uh, an important thing to think about. Is this the thing uh, that you are going to manage or are you going to go into a siege mentality? And what do I mean by that? Uh, a lot of people will say, well, you know, we're going to ignore this. Uh, kind of like the Garden of Eden, you know. The Garden of Eden's got great lessons on how to not manage a crisis. First of all, don't lie to God. Uh, <laughs> second of all, don't try to cover up, right? I mean, you know, you sit there and go, okay, well, there's things. So you sit there and go, what are we dealing with here? And uh, sometimes people will say, oh, it's just the haters. Or this is the big reflex that you have to fight. And that is, we're just going to say no comment. No comment. And in the world we live in today, that's not a good answer. Now, I will tell you, this is a very appropriate answer. We'll, we'll get deeper into this in a minute. But to say, I, I, we, we want to help you because the media wants to know. And I'm talking about real media, not social media, real, real reporters that have a job to do. And you say, look, we're, we're looking into this. We just found out. Uh, we, don't, we don't have all the information. If you'll give me your card, I'll communicate with you. We're not... You know, we're not trying to hide the ball here, but I can't give you what you're asking for right now. And generally, not always, but generally, uh, they, they're respectful of that, and you can work with those kind of professional media folks. So, um, again, uh, it's intense scrutiny. It's going to be hot in the kitchen. And avoid the siege mentality, which is a reflex. So, anything you want to chip in to say? I was just going to, the media will lie to you when they're, coming to you, asking for questions. We have churches all the time. They'll call and they'll say, they gave me an hour and a half to provide a, a written response to a question. And they said they only want to do it to help us. That's why they've asked the question, so we could clear our good name and we could be there. So it's really important that you have, and we're going to talk about this a little bit later on, but you have in your plan that you have, you have an initial response to the media that can buy you that time so you can prepare your actual statement that you're going to have. And then you'll have your long form statement that will be there as well. But, um, you know, you can have the right position on something, but if you have the, the wrong disposition at the same time and you have, uh, you know, almost an attitude or something like that with it, you just want to make sure to tread very carefully with them and they lie. So just understand and remember that. Panic on the Titanic. Um, when I say that, what I mean is uh, when a real legitimate crisis happens, again, you have that sucking out, all the air gets sucked out of the room. You're asking all the who, what, when, where, why questions. What are we going to do? And they always ultimately end up down at the very bottom of this list, and that is, will we survive this? Are we going to survive this? And I will tell you, the answer generally is yes, you will. Uh, why is that? Well, if you do a good job at the things we're going to talk about today, also taking into account that we as a culture have the retention, memory retention of about 35 seconds, uh, you can survive a crisis. Uh, what, and you may be thinking, well, what's he talking about, man? There, there, are, there are some crises you can't, you can't survive. I mean, uh, we, we, had a, we had a church client, they'd been on a, 
on missions uh, in Europe. Uh, the pastor and his wife were the, the co-pastors of the church and the, and the vice president who was the assistant pastor of the church went to pick him up at the airport. Uh, the, and when they come back from the Smithson's trip and on the way from the airport back home, they roll the van that they're in from the church. They're all three ejected. The president, the vice president, secretary, treasurer of the corporation are killed instantly. And all of a sudden, you know, you're not going to survive that in a sense, but the church can survive it. Okay. The church can survive it because you don't panic. And, uh, and so I tell folks, and if you look at that last sentence, that one of the key things for me is, is I'm asking myself how to help a client go through a crisis is to remember, we got to keep the main thing, the main thing. What's the main thing for you guys? Ministry. When we communicate, we want to make sure we're communicating that we're a loving body of believers and that we care. We don't want to look like we're hiding or trying to cover up. You know, cover-ups don't work. I mean, go ask the diocese locally here in the Roman Catholic Church, how well does that work? Not well. Okay, so no cover-ups, no lying, and you want to communicate keeping the main thing the main thing. So, um, Can I, let me, on the the cover-up, you know, the... We get calls all the time where there's a child abuse allegation or something like that. And frankly, that's most of what a church crisis would be if there's a volunteer or a staff member and there's something that has to do with child abuse. And the question that we get is, is there a mandatory reporting statute in my state that I have to report this person? And we go through now, you know, at this point, we don't care really what the mandatory report statute says because there is a court of law that has legal risk to it, but in the court of public opinion, it will then be told, you knew about abuse, but you didn't report it to anyone. And it's not our job to try to be Sherlock Holmes and investigate claims and try to figure out if the abuse was true, but we report what we know. And that's just something whenever the first report or the first inkling comes up, report what you know, let the professionals do their part. Uh, They want to do good in their community. They want to help people. And it's something that can be forgotten. And you don't want to ever get to the media and have it not have been reported by you because it's really bad. You end up like Penn State. You think, you know, Penn State nowadays, they didn't do what they were supposed to do. And there's that stigma with that. So just report what you know, and uh, it helps through the uh, process of the crisis. Sure. Um, the crisis, when the quake happens and, and there's an actual crisis, and I, one of the things that I go through when I'm trying to determine whether or not it's a, just a problem or a challenge or an issue or an irritation versus a crisis is I ask myself, what is at risk? What, what you know, I know there's this guy out here that blogs about everything that you do from where, what you, how you dress, what, what your use of the English language is. It drives you nuts. Uh, you want him to go away and you want to call me and make me do it. And I can't, that is an irritation. That's a burr under your saddle blanket. Y'all know what that means, right? That's a Texas saying, but uh, that's something you're just like going, I can't, but that's not a crisis. That's just an irritation. A true crisis. You literally, for example, you're, you have cost associated with it. For example, reputational cost. And I, I think about this, this is for the individual, it could be the senior pastor, somebody on staff, their reputation could be completely destroyed if this is not managed properly. I can give you some great war stories about that if I had time, but reputational cost is a big one. 
because it impacts not only the individual, but in the world in which we live, it also impacts the organization. And sometimes I tell churches, for example, uh, they may have um, somebody that's got a child abuse record or whatever, and they want to put them into ministry. Well, he did all that before, you know, he went to prison or whatever the deal was. And now he's saved and he's been delivered and he, he loves kids. And so we, we believe that. So we're going to put him in the ministry. Uh, let him be a volunteer or whatever. And I just say, well, understand, I believe salvation, forgiveness, restoration. But I also believe in risk management, okay? And so if you want to bet everything, the entire church, every dollar that's ever been given, every soul that's ever been saved, every baptism that's ever been performed or will be performed in this church, you want to bet it on your sense of whether or not this guy should be in your children's ministry, go for it. Uh, but I wouldn't. I'd put them in the parking lot ministry, right? So that is a simple kind of things. Chicago, in the city of Chicago recently, the two, two, one of the two largest churches in America has gone down because of reputational cost associated with the senior pastors of those churches. Think about that. Chicago. Largest churches in uh, cities in America, largest churches in America, went down because issues were not handled properly, and there was misconduct, and there was a lot of obfuscation as, a, as it related to how that was going to be handled, and so the church, the pastors were gone. There's a financial cost. Um, you know, another thing that I go through when I'm deciding whether something's an irritation or it's an actual crisis <laughs> or something in between is, well, do you need legal help? Uh, because most oftentimes, a real crisis, you need a lawyer. Uh, and you need a lawyer that knows what they're doing. You may, not, you may also need other people on your team. But if, there's, if it's a real crisis, most of the time you're going to need a lawyer uh, to help you through it. And that's not a self-serving statement. It's just a test for me. And uh, so you, you look at that and you have to be prepared for that. And then also on the effectiveness cost of the ministry. And that is, are people going to leave your church and we can't forget, and I know you guys don't forget this, but there's a lot of churches to choose from. And people get to vote by their shoe leather. I mean, if they don't like how you're handling stuff, they don't like how you're thinking, how you're organizing things, what you did as it related to that youth pastor that you had a problem with and you shuffled him off to the other church and then blah, blah, blah. And then it comes back to you and they go, why would I go to this? I'm gonna go to this church. Go to another church. And so those are the kind of things that you need to be really uh, attended to. And one of my favorite stories, you know, there's actually a silver lining to some of these. It was a um, church in the Midwest and they had a child abuse situation that happened. So they called, what do we do? And it actually had merit to it. So, you know, it was unknown. They were on the fence as to whether they should report, you know, this is somebody they're involved. We would never suspect it. Gave the speech, report, report. So they reported be cooperative with law enforcement. They were cooperative with law enforcement and they really worked through a good crisis plan with it. And it was really cool. The church had um, like upward basketball and sports leagues that were there. And the actual investigator, the child abuse investigator that was with the police department commented to the church that they handled their crisis so well with everything. He said, we're going to get our kids and we're going to put them in the sports league and then we'll be at church on Sunday. Yeah. So I thought that was a cool thing with that. And you just never know what you're speaking loudly, even through how you're handling a very horrible situation. That's why yeah. it's important. Um, 
Seven most common crises in churches. Uh, none of this is going to be surprising to you. I don't want do want to highlight again the importance of um, making sure that your church is a safe place for kids. And the word picture I use for that is if the church was a bank, the area where your children's ministry occurs is the vault, full of the gold bars. Okay, everything else is cool. You know, it's fun, it's great, great bookstore, great coffee, et cetera. And ain't the vault. Uh, and there are people, they're called preferential predatory pedophiles. I've got a case right now with the church that it's the worst uh, example of a preferential predatory pedophile. Y'all, y'all know what I mean by that. Like, I, I, this guy likes kids, he's a predator, and he seeks out opportunities to do that, right? And so this, this case is just, is just it's mind-blowing how, how he would go. And I, I refer to it as the Jurassic Park kind of thing where, remember in Jurassic Park, is like, what's that sound? Sounds like the dinosaurs are coming. No, they're just testing the fence line. And that's what this guy did. He tested the fence lines until finally he got in. 22 kids later. Okay, and that's... That's just, I mean, it's just real. So that's the vault. So I want to point that out to you. Leadership, resignations or changes in leadership, incidents and accidents on the property. Vision change is a big one. I mean, you wouldn't think probably putting that in a crisis category would be something we would talk about. But we see it a lot that when, for example, I talked last week or week before to a pastor and he's like, hey, we're in this denomination but 85% of our church is spirit-filled, and this denomination thinks that's like of the devil. And so we got we to gotta make some changes here. And I'm like, okay, well, you're not in a crisis, but you have a potential crisis on your hands. Because he said, the problem is the 85% that are cool and young and look like you all, uh, they're, they're new Christians. The 15%, they're the, they're the givers. And I'm like, okay, whoa, 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 slow down. We're going to go slow here because you have a potential crisis on your hands if you don't handle that correctly. And with, with that one, it's really important to know what your governing documents say, your bylaws, um, whatever your equivalent of your articles of incorporation are with your state. Because when you have the vision change, that's when you have you know, two different groups that pop up in the church and they're at odds. And they always have the one vocal person that causes all the problems, sends all the emails, posts to social media, interrupts meetings and all of those things. So you have to get to the place where you have clarity. And it's important to look at those documents now to make sure we had a situation earlier this year and the governing documents were an absolute mess. They were ambiguous. They contradicted everything. And we couldn't have any protection from those as we worked through the process. So one of the best things that you can do is make sure that you have good, clear bylaws that don't contradict your articles and uh, find a lawyer like us you to know, be able uh, to yeah. <laughs> and, help and with that. A good, solid church fight makes the Alamo look like a slumber party. <laughs> uh, for real. I mean, it's just, it is crazy. And this is, this is not a made-up story. I was in a, a couple years ago in a church fight. I mean, I wasn't, but I was representing the church, and there was a major split. And so we're having the big vote, and unfortunately in their bylaws it said, Robert's Rules of Order which are straight from hell, in my opinion. And, uh, and so we were having to conduct this Robert's Rules of Order meeting after the church service, after the third Sunday, after the regularly scheduled full moon, all this blah, blah, blah. 
And, uh, and so finally we get in there, and, and so this, this police officer who's security at the church said, hey, listen, I really think you ought to wear a bulletproof vest under your jacket. And I'm like, what? And he goes, there's some people that are really wound up here. And I was like, you know what? I'll go down doing that. I don't know where bulletproof vest, but I couldn't believe it, you know? And so Mike, really smart, and they taught me this in law school. If you're in the middle of a long, brutal, bloody church fight on Sunday afternoon, turn the air conditioning off in Texas in the summer, and people start leaving. <laughs> and I just told my people, I know it's hot, but you stay because I need you to vote, okay? And we won. So anyway... <laughs> But um, so, so we want to get to, you got to have a plan. I mean, it's just like anything else in life. If you can pre-plan, just like that flight attendant. I mean, can you imagine if we, if we had this knowledge that, hey, man, if I get on an airplane and it loses pressure in the cabin, I'm going to die. I think it probably have an input act on air travel, right? A little bit. Uh, it's comforting to me. Even though I don't pay attention, I'm about to go to 3 million miles on American Airlines. Kind of proud of that. I've flown a lot in my life and my career. I don't pay any attention to them anymore, but I'm glad they're there. And I know they're trained, and I know that there's a plan. And if you have a plan, when the crisis occurs, the people around you, you're in leadership, and they recognize we're not going to just try to wing this. We've thought this through, then it makes a world of difference, okay? And so that's why we want to talk to you about that issue. So what do we recommend you do? First of all, determine what constitutes a crisis, okay? And get rid of the non-crisis stuff. Like I was talking about, the blogger person, that's not a crisis. That's just an irritation. Uh, but but there's, there's gradations of things that can become crises. And in your particular situation, it may be something I wouldn't even think of uh, that, that could become a crisis, so you need to identify what are your potential crises. We named seven of them that we think are pretty generally applicable to everyone, but you may have some special ones. Identify and then rank the crisis that's most likely to occur to you. Okay, begin to rank it. Go, you know, if I were to look at it right now, I think we're, this is where we're at our greatest risk. And then rank those crises and then set some clear objectives about what you're going to do and how you're going to handle your crisis. It's not unlike... I call it war games. Other people might say we're, 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 we're creating football plays and we want to run through those plays. Whatever, whatever word picture you want to use is fine, but just take the time to do it. It doesn't take that long, and we'll talk about some of the elements of that. But again— What, what it does, though, is it takes you—the you know, the difference between checkers and chess, you know? It's, instead of reacting to everything, it lets you think three steps ahead through the entire process. So when it hits you, you're able to go ahead with it. And it's important to have that plan. And, and I will tell you, it's like playing kind of like five levels of chess. You know, if you can imagine a five level chess board, because there's multiple constituencies that you have to consider when you're developing your response plan. Uh, and it's going to be from those that are like within your church that are going to be completely devastated if this event happens down to people that might be angry. They're not devastated. They're angry. Uh, but then there's very upset and there's, they're hurt, you know, and then you're going to have people maybe in your community, they're just curious. And so how are you going to communicate to those constituents? There's other constituencies you might, might identify at your church, but you got to kind of think about that because you're going to, you're going to communicate with them differently. 
the, the person that's merely curious is not going to get the information that the board member or the overseer gets. Right? Okay. All right. So, you want to go? Sure. So, how to de- de- just to, de- to develop a crisis plan, number one, have a plan in place who is ultimately responsible for calling the shots. It's really good to have someone on your team that is designated as a spokesperson for you and somebody that's there, they're ready to communicate on behalf of the organization. And, um, you know, a lot of times too, I don't know, has anyone, have any of your churches ever been sued for anything? Okay, a couple, couple of us. Uh, ha- have a plan in place even for when that happens because uh, when the lawsuit shows up, you know, you need to make sure that you're reacting quickly enough. You know, all that's public and the world's going to know and, and all those things. And um, just it's absolutely important that you have a plan in place. So who is on the crisis team? Uh, staff management team, you know, security director, deacons and elders, the pastors, legal advisor is really important. Uh, making sure that your insurance carrier is apprised. That's the most forgotten one in all of this. Uh, if a lawsuit shows up or something like that, there's a provision in your insurance policy that says that you have to place your carrier on notice. And if you don't place your carrier on notice, you'll bypass that coverage that would be there for you under your policy. So uh, it's really important that you have that and it's looked at from that perspective. And then it's also good to make sure that your policy is in a place where uh, you're going to have protection for your volunteers, for people that even would be on your security teams and those types of things. So uh, you have different layers that are there. You have different people that are in the know. Um, It's really important as well that you have people that have authority to be able to talk on behalf of the church that are there. So if you're an elder-led church or if you have, um, you know, just whatever your structure is that you have, make sure that that group that has the authority, they know the plan so you don't have 18 different people saying things when something happens. You need, and the biggest value in this is that you have a unified together, united team. The staff is saying the exact same thing as the elders and right on down the chain. So one of the things you often encounter and and you kind of again reflexively think that the best person to be the spokesperson for the church in a crisis would be the senior pastor. And oftentimes, and most, mostly, it's not the correct person to put out there, at least initially, uh, because you don't want them um, branded with this crisis, okay? Somebody else within the church or an outsider, PR person, attorney, whatever, whoever you're using to help you manage the crisis, better for them to be speaking on behalf of the church than um, the senior pastor oftentimes. Uh, And so I just remind you of that. And also keep in mind uh, that (laughs) crisis is an opportunity, Um, particularly from uh, a media standpoint. Uh, as, As bad as it feels when the TV trucks start rolling up into the parking lot, if you manage your crisis correctly and you think ahead of time, for example, hey, by the way, if we ever have a crisis, we want the spokesperson to stand in front of the church's sign. Uh, that way, when they're talking, the signs, the name of the church is there because we want people to come to our church. And we could never get this attention otherwise. And we're very confident we're going to get through it. So it's free advertising. All right. Yeah, okay, what about radio? How is it going to be different? How about written communication? How about social media? There's a bunch of strategies you've got to think through, and you've got to have a centralized command person to manage that. So, And it's really helpful, too, to get some outside help with this. Um, when the media is asking questions, and I'd mentioned a moment ago, 
golden rule for communication is you make sure everybody is on the same page. And we just had one of these uh, two weeks ago, and the pastor was worried that the media was going to show up on Sunday and um, ask questions. And, you know, his question to us is, you know, if the media is here, you know, can I call the police and have them removed from the property? Can I have my security guys get rid of them, you know? So we got out the Constitution and probably the First Amendment and said, hey, that freedom of religion, freedom of the press, right there together. Um, so no, we can't do that. Probably not a good idea, you know? We're, we're here and then you get the camera, you know, some angry security guard, you know, chasing them down. But what we recommend is that whatever public statement that you're going to issue from the pulpit in church about it, you have it in writing, and that is the beginning, and that is the end on your statement. And it's written, and you're not going to go extemporaneous on that one. You're going to read through the public statement from the very beginning to the very end. Everybody on the team, they have the same public statement. If they get a question that's asked what do you have to say about that as the student pastor? Or what do you have to say as the children's pastor? You have a copy of the statement and you're ready to go. So then if the media shows up and they ask anybody any questions about it, we've already given our statement on this and everybody is saying the exact same thing. And Facebook, it's, Twitter, everything. Every, everything's got to be consistent all across the board. And it's very good that you make sure that you have some outside help on that because you're right in the thick of everything. You want to see how it's going to be perceived you want to be able to have people with experience with this to be able to put those statements together. There's a fine line, especially when you have abuse situations. You know, as a church, we're supposed to be shepherds and we're supposed to care for the uh, the victims in abuse situations. But then at the same time, we have a responsibility to protect the rest of the entity and the church as well. So those are very, very nuanced, I guess. And you have to be very artful in how they're, how they're written and how they're communicated. But it's so important. Same thing across the board. Let's jump down to the post-crisis retrospective thing. Um, I think it's important that after you go through a crisis, whatever it is, uh, that you step back with your team. Your team may be you and your wife uh, and some friends. I don't know. It depends on the size of your church, what the issues are. Or it may be the entire board or whoever's involved in this response and go, hey, how'd we do? And how can we improve? Uh, it's the post-game film scenario. Because, again, the, the better you are, the greater you are, the more uh, effective you are, the bigger you become, et cetera, et cetera. Crisis follows, and the, they just get bigger, okay? Um, they may be different, but they're just bigger. So I think that's an important uh, exercise uh, to go through. And then I was just going to read you guys um, something that I, I think is a great example of a crisis that we're all probably aware of, the, the 737 MAX issue uh, that's going on with Boeing, right? The, the grounding of the fleet. And the reason I use this as an example is because I think this is a great example of an organization uh, that is, I mean, super, super successful, right? Uh, everybody's flown on a Boeing plane. They've got all the resources in the world, and they have completely bungled this crisis. In fact, I don't think that the CEO of Boeing will survive this. He gets paid $30 million a year, excluding stock options. Okay. And you know what he did when the crisis occurred? Now you got to understand this. They knew they wanted to build an old new plane. 
Uh, and what that meant was we're going to use an old airframe, put new engines, new equipment, et cetera, avoid FAH uh, licensing, licensing and approval and all that, and no more additional training for the pilots because that's really costly, and we'll beat Airbus. Our planes will be more cost-effective. And a bunch of people nine years ago resigned over it. They went ahead. So they, they had a nine-year heads up. We got a potential crisis on our hands if this plane doesn't work right, okay? So what did he do? Uh, nothing. There was no, this is the, I'm going to read to you the first statement that came out from Boeing, just real quickly. March 13th, 2019. Now, the, the, there was a crash in the fall of last year. There was a crash in February of this year, first time anybody says anything from Boeing is March 13th. They say, Boeing continues to have full confidence in the safety of the 737 MAX. However, after consultation with all these government organizations, Boeing has determined out of an abundance of caution and in order to reassure the flying public of the aircraft safety to recommend the FAA temporarily suspend operations of the entire global fleet of 371 737 MAX planes. Well, interestingly, when he said that, the entire world had already done it, other than the United States. So he's late to the party, right? I think we can all agree. He then says, on behalf of the entire Boeing team, we extend our deepest sympathies to the families. We are supporting the proactive steps out of an abundance of caution. Uh, we're doing everything we can to understand the cause of the accidents, et cetera, et cetera. But Boeing makes this recommendation and supports the decision. Now, I'll tell you how that reads to me. I don't have it reads to you. It reads to me like, we don't want to do this. We think it's the wrong decision, but we don't have any choice. Does that, anybody disagree? Okay, I want to show you what we did. These are the exact same words. And you tell me if it's a different message. I went and rewrote it. First of all, I changed the title. I just said, Boeing supports action to temporarily ground 737 MAX operations. My name is Dennis Muhlenberg, and I'm the president, CEO, and chairman of the Boeing Company. And on behalf of the entire Boeing team, we extend our deepest sympathies to the families and loved ones of those who have lost their lives in these two tragic accidents. Why is that important? What is Boeing's job, really? To sell airplanes? Not to me. I want to get on a Boeing plane, and then when it lands, I want to get off the Boeing plane alive. <laughs> That's the main thing. The main thing is not shareholder performance. It's not the government. It's about making sure people are saying, I'm not picking on Boeing. I'm picking on this statement. All right? So, so I went on. It says, so now I've, now I've said, I've taken a statement. I said, we're sorry this happened to these people. Next paragraph. Safety is our core value at Boeing for as long as we have been building airplanes, and it always will be, because that's the main thing to us, safety. There is no greater priority for our company and our industry, and we're doing everything we can to understand the cause of this accident in partnership with the investigators, deploy safety enhancements, et cetera. And then say, and he says, Boeing continues to have full confidence in the safety of the 737. However, out of an abundance of caution, and in an order to reassure the flying public of the aircraft safety, Boeing has recommended to the FAA the temporary suspension of operations of the global fleet of 737 MAXs. Now, is that different? Does that feel different to you? Those are the same words. 
but it's a different attitude. It's a different purpose. It's keeping the main thing the main thing. It's a terrible, nobody, nobody will be able to bring back those, those people that died in that flight. They will not come back. But they're recognizing in this statement, I believe, that that's their number one priority is people. So I breeze that as an example. If you're going through a crisis, whether you're writing a press release or you're working with someone to think about talking points for the media, or you're going to have to talk to your congregation or whatever this thing is, keep the main thing the main thing. Always start with what you're about and why it matters and what you're doing to continue to minister despite the crisis that you're going through. And if you do that, you can navigate the storm you can get to the other side, and you'll be stronger for it. Amen? All right. That's it. Any questions? Thank you. Questions? We weren't that, we weren't that good. Come on, seriously. <laughs> Has to be some questions. Really entertaining, you asked, you know, who at church had went through that, and, and uh, we were able to raise our hand. I'm not proud of that, but it's part of, you know, longevity. I think it's going to happen sometimes over time. We have to have a plan in case it does, right? Like you said, so I agree with all that. Thank you for, for sharing. I think those are some very practical things in the church world that, you know, we just don't think about, you know, and so I think it's good. I think it needs to be out there more. Um, and and gov- church government documents, like you said, you stated, I mean, I'm just going to overstate it because I've learned it is so important. I mean, that is the backbone of protection for your church. If your church governing documents, your bylaws, your, uh, those articles, if they aren't sound, if they aren't true, if, if they aren't looked over by somebody who knows what they're talking about, then when you need them, <laughs> they're not going to be there to support you and they're going to, it's going to be a fail, you know. Thank you for that. That is a very astute observation. And I'll tell you one little war story. I had a client a couple years ago, um, one of the largest churches in the country, uh, but it started off as a small church and a certain church polity, uh, politics, way that it was governed. And so as they went about, they didn't have a lawyer, they didn't talk, think about it, but as they went about doing their um, expansion and their multiple campuses, uh, they were an elder-led church, okay? So the elders were really in charge. Uh, and so at each at each location, they just said, well, we'll just use the, you know, when we go to this state, we'll just change states and use the same stuff. Well, the problem was they ended up with seven campuses and it required each one of them to have 14 elders. That's 84 elders. And there's one pastor And so there's a crisis. We have to call an elder meeting. All 84 are coming. So I'm thinking, I need to know who they are. I'd like to know. And he goes, well, I don't know most of them. Uh, We just use the same old bylaws. And I said, man, we got a problem. Uh, (laughs) You're you're, uh, the, the statistical likelihood of you being successful in a crisis with 84 people and the majority of them you don't actually know, is low, low. (laughs) Very, very low. I mean, right? 
And so it's a great example of, of how things can go wrong. And, and so governing documents are super important. And there you can litigate the governing documents. Courts will not interfere with how you do church, but they will bind you to what your governing documents say. That's why it's important. So when it comes to votes, little things like, did you provide the right notice to the people whose membership rights were at risk? Did you, and all of those things, a court can come back and say, nope, what you did, we're going to completely set that aside because you didn't follow your bylaws. And then you're just in a big mess with everything. And uh, one of the things that we wanted to mention, um, if you have more questions, be thinking, I'm not going to hijack those. Um, but we wanted to highlight to you guys, we have a client membership program at the Church Lawyers, and we're a national law practice. And it just made me think of it with um, everything we've talked about with the bylaws and all of those things. Um, but a great opportunity. What we're excited about with the membership program is, you know, a lot of times when you think of lawyers and you think of, you know, the different things, our main core value is a relationship with you guys. So we want you to be able to pick up the phone and you see what the client membership fee is. It's normally 2100 but since you're an ARC conference attendee, if you give us a, send us an email, give us a call, hey, I was at the ARC conference and I want to sign up, it's only $1,500 for you guys. And that's an entire year of the benefits that are spelled out. And I mentioned that relationship is really important. You get a monthly credit of $225 to your account. And it's comforting to be able to pick up the phone and to have a conversation about those bylaws right now before everything goes south, the crisis comes, and to be able to work through those without worrying about, you know, the billable hour clock ticking down. And we really value that relationship. So that's why you get the monthly credit that's there. You get a 25% discount on all legal fees that are incurred beyond that $225. If you have a school, anybody have a school affiliated with their church at all? Okay, so if you have a school associated as well, complimentary membership there for the school and you have access there. And we're developing and rolling out a school law program this year, faculty contracts, waivers, student handbooks, uh, even you know practical things like how to enforce and have collect collectible uh, you know financial policies, all that kind of stuff is coming, and uh, we actually already have it. So call us if you want that now. Um, access to all forms and documents pertaining to school law, contracts, waivers, handbooks, and then same thing for church bylaws. You know we have uh, child abuse prevention policies. We can talk you through those, and I can't underscore it enough just that relational and relationship aspect of it. We love to be able to. It's a lot easier to steer around. Um, you know, the puddle, you know, remember when you were watching cartoons as a kid and quicksand was a thing, uh, it's not as bad of a problem <laughs> as an adult as it was in the cartoons, but it's a lot cheaper. It's a lot less stress to steer around the quicksand and to, to navigate around that than it is to get stuck in it and to have to hire someone to yank you out of there and uh, the peace that you'll have and to be able to focus on ministry. So that is really our calling. That's what we feel called to do. So I wanted to mention that. Um, any more questions? This is stump the lawyer time. So started off with just kind of, yeah, just kind of double emphasis, but the, really the question was what, and I don't know. So I'm asking like, where's like for our, this instance, we had us with the school. And so they were suing our, the school, the church and the senior pastor, you know, and so we called the insurance company, uh, which we have a, I don't know the details on it, so I can't say I do, but we have a very good risk management type policy. So they were hired a lawyer. They said, give us all you know, we'll take it from here. I mean, they would send us very few updates, but they finally sent us an update. Look, it's handled, it's done. 
You know, it's not, it wasn't settled. It was just, it was over with, you know, like in other words, they didn't have to pay him or anything. They just proved that it was not our fault, you know. Right. And so it was, everything was cleared. But how do I know, like, you know, what's a, a, a good, I don't know, like, when do you just call the insurance or when do I look to somebody like you guys to help? Like, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, I'll take, I get to do the litigation. So my, before I came on at the firm, I worked at a trial firm in downtown Dallas. And uh, it's really important. Give us a call or whoever your church-based lawyer is, um, because you want to have people that are looking out primarily for your interests when your insurance policy hires insurance defense counsel, extremely competent and capable. They're going to do a great job. And they have rules under the Bar Association to be your advocate and to zealously advocate for you as their lawyer. But their client technically is the insurance company, and that's who is hiring them on a repeated basis. So there is a loyalty, almost a conflict without there being a conflict. The lawyer is supposed to, but it's really good to have in what we do is we're able to kind of oversee the process and just make sure that motions are getting filed on time, no deadlines are being missed. And the secular law firms don't really have a good grasp on First Amendment law. Uh, Beginning of this year, I had to right into an insurance defense case, there was a a church that they were being sued for um, in a small group. The pastor emailed the small group about child abuse from one of the participants in the group. And it was up in the, uh, at the trial. And we had to put in the pretrial brief, we had to defend, and I never thought I'd have to do this, but the first amendment right of a church to have a small group because it fulfills the discipleship component from Acts 2.42 and go through all those. So that's what we get to do. And that's why we're really thankful that we're in the know on church law and uh, to be able to help from that way. And sometimes depending on who the carrier is, they'll let us be your lawyers. So that's, that's another cool thing that can happen as well. So, um, but, but Dustin's point is really like one of the happiest moments I ever had. I'm, was a, I did a lot of trial work when I was young and I had a similar situation where we put this language in a document and the judge is looking at it and he looks at opposing counsel and looks at me and he says to opposing counsel, words to the effect of, I don't think they'd say this today, but he said, counsel, now this is Texas, right? Counsel, I don't think I can cut into this lawsuit without getting the blood of Christ all over my hands. <laughs> Dismissed. And I was like, yes. We didn't have phones back then or whatever. But anyway, yeah, so it's really important. And it's the distinction between people that kind of understand there's this, this is a, a very nuanced world that you guys live in. And there's special protections that the founding fathers, who I believe that, hot summer in Philadelphia that the Holy Spirit descended uh, when the Constitution and the Bill of Rights was, was written. And they provided for protection for us to be able to do church the way that we believe God called us to do it. To Dustin's point, that's why bylaws and articles of incorporation are so important. You know why they call them bylaws, right? This is for real. They're the laws by, it's an old English term, you have to live. Okay, if you lived in the old village, you know, Nottingham, the sheriff would put up the the laws by which you live, and they were called? Bingo. So your bylaws need to be your bylaws, not somebody else's bylaws. I tell folks, bylaws should be like a mirror. Uh, It should not reflect your buddy's church or your favorite church or the church you want to be someday. It should reflect you and your church. So each page, as you turn it, you look at it, you read it, and you go, yeah, that's us. That's us. Because if you find yourself in a courthouse, 
Those are the laws by which you will have to behave. And if you've got a bunch of stuff in there that says we have subcommittees and I had a client one time, I went to the executive pastor's big traditional church. And I said, dude, when was the last time? And they treated the bylaws like the constitution. I mean, it was like I had to put on gloves and go in a room or something. They're like, here they are. (laughs) And I'm like, okay. And so I start going through them and I'm like, you have 52 subcommittees of your board of directors. And he was like, well, so? And I said, what? Okay. I said, you know, you have to have those, right? (laughs) You don't have those. I said, well, I watched the broadcast on television, man. I've always been, it's always kind of struck me how beautiful the flowers are on the broadcast on television. And I said, uh, who, who selects those? Who pays for them? What's the budget? He goes, I don't know. Somebody does. TV, probably. No, 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 no. You have 52 subcommittees. One of them is the Sunday morning worship service floral selection subcommittee. Only they can put flowers on that stage. Only they can spend money. And he goes, well, that's ridiculous. And I go, we need to change your bylaws. He goes, no, no, we can't because they're like the Constitution, right? So that's an example, crazy example, but don't get caught up in that. So because everybody wants to share bylaws and the bylaws for this church may not be, you know, in this. So anyway, just make sure that your bylaws reflect who you are. Okay. Because it's really important. Thank you guys. We love you. Praying over you. Blessings. Thanks for coming.